book of the spread of Christianity is designated by some as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now you probably have written at the heading uh, in your Bible, the Acts of the Apostles. But you know what? I'm sure that if the Apostles were living among us today, they would concur with the definition that it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. They, more than any of us, recognize that their message, their ministry, was controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, and that apart from the Holy Spirit, there would be no church whatsoever. Maybe, maybe a formalized thing like we have in many organizations today, but not the church as the Bible speaks of it. Every believer is born again into the family of God by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that there is a natural birth resulting from the normal process of conception and birth. And he also taught that there is a spiritual birth. The first makes us citizens in, of humanity in which the world becomes our biological home. The second makes us citizens in Christ's body, his church, in which the world is but a stepping stone to our everlasting home with God in glory. In Jesus' words, he said it this way, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God. Now he's talking about the spiritual aspect of this. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Literally, the Greek says born from above. A heavenly birth. He goes on. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. John 3, verse 3 and following. And he was talking to Nicodemus. And this teaching stumped Nicodemus, a, a noted rabbi of Jesus' day. And it has stumped many of the intellectual community of our own day. We're accustomed to dealing with things in the natural world. We are not very adept at dealing with things in the supernatural world. We affirm the natural. We question the supernatural. And this is because all of our experience is in the natural realm. We have no experience in the supernatural. We believe what men tell us because we are men and we are women, like our teachers. That's why we send kids off to college or trade school or what have you. And we expect to be taught what they know that we don't know. That's our way of learning. We think that they know more than us, so we're willing to listen to them and pay them to teach us what they know. We do not listen to God because God is not one of us. And we're not as sure of what he teaches as we are of men. Yet even here we tell on ourselves. And what we tell is that for most of us, God would be more believable, more believable, if he were more like us and less like himself. But if we, he were more like us and less like himself, what incentive would we have to obey him over 
all of our other teachers? Or where would be the wonder in God? Or why would he deserve worship if he were altogether like us? What I'm saying here is what Jesus told Nicodemus, which is basically this. I'm paraphrasing. Nicodemus, you may have trouble understanding and believing that you must be born of God into a spiritual birth, which, is, which essentially transforms your spirit, your soul, your mind, your everything. But like it or not, believe it or not, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born of the Spirit. John 3, verse 5. You notice here that Jesus did not back off from this just because Nicodemus was having trouble accepting it. He did not say to Nicodemus, well, you know, you have a point. I, I see your confusion and all this and that. No, he pressed it again. And you notice in the text, if you were to have the text before you, he said it a second time. We cannot back off either because it is the teaching of the Lord of the church. The wisdom of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And God makes foolish the wisdom of this world by requiring of us his standard, which can only be effected in our lives by himself through his own Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is an essential lesson for us to learn. We are not our own God, as the world would have us believe. We are creatures, not creators. And as such, we are subject to the dictates and the wisdom of God Almighty. We can find, fight this. We can resist it with our intellect Indeed, with all of our body, soul, and spirit, but God will be proven true, and every one of us will be proven to be a liar. Wisdom would dictate, therefore, that we swallow our sinful pride, we begin to imbibe the wisdom of God, which he so graciously shares with us in his written word. It's a wise person, indeed, who understands the limitations of his own knowledge and is willing to be exposed, to be examined, to be corrected, refined, bettered by the wisdom that comes from God, an infinite God. You see, such wisdom is transforming in nature, and that is what is meant by the new birth, or the phrase being born again. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us as we hear of Christ in the gospel. Now as to Jesus Christ himself, we would expect some similarities in this, but also some things that are very unique to him alone. The Spirit of God begins, began his work in Jesus as a man in his conception and birth. We, we read about that this morning. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that the Holy Spirit was personally involved in the conception of Jesus. Luke records Gabriel's announcement to Mary this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke 1 
verse 35. Matthew's account relates the conversation to Joseph, who was worried about taking Mary as his wife, believing wrongly that her pregnancy was due to infidelity on her part. And so again, he is told, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 20. So both accounts stress the virginity of Mary in this conception. Luke's phraseology, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, reflects in some measure, I think, the statement in Genesis 1 verse 2 where we are told at the original creation, the earth was formless and empty and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In creation, it was the Spirit of God who was the active agent. God the Father said, Christ was that energized word, John 1, 1, and so on. And the Spirit executed the will and the word of God to bring about the desired results. So too, the Spirit of God hovered over or overshadowed Mary's womb in the conception of Jesus. And just as in creation something brand new was occurring in space-time, so the Bible says of Jesus' conception, the Lord will create a new thing on the earth. What's the new thing? A woman will surround a man. Jeremiah 31, verse 22. King James Version says, will compass a man, or encompass, encase. Say, well, what's so special about that? Well, the idea is this. A woman by herself, without the aid of a man. In Jesus' case, conception with no sexual intercourse, no sperm to fertilize Mary's egg. This is indeed new on the earth. New then, new thereafter, never before, never after was there a conception like this. Isaiah put it this way, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 verse 14, God with us. Observe, however, that the emphasis of both Matthew and Luke is that Jesus was conceived in Mary, not simply created within her. This is to say that Jesus' human nature was obtained from Mary so that the writer of Hebrews is correct in describing him as one who shared in our humanity, Hebrews 2 verse 14. He was not simply a duplicate human nature as though Mary was just some kind of divinely chosen incubator, I've heard that said of her, for God's Son. No, Jesus is truly a member of the human race. 
revitalizing the old and not simply starting afresh. Mary had her part in the generation of the human nature of our Lord. A woman by herself conceived a child from her egg alone. Absolute miraculous of, the, of incarnation. Now the role of the Holy Spirit in this is mysterious to be sure. Because nothing in human experience before or since relates to this. But this we know. Whatever the nature of the overshadowing of the Spirit was, the end person was one possessing both God's nature and man's nature. In Jesus, our Lord assumes both, takes up both, for then, yes, but for all of eternity to come. What has not been told us in all of this, we accept on the basis of the word of God, but what has been told us calls on us to believe it and to act upon it. The only alternative is the skepticism and the mockery of the leaders of Jesus' day who said to him in a retort, We were not born in fornication. New King James Version. Or the NMV says, We are not illegitimate children. That is to say, and this is what they were saying, We aren't, but you are. We aren't, but you are. They thought, they thought they knew Jesus' origins. They had heard the rumors of Mary's pregnancy before her marriage, and they drew the natural conclusion of an unenlightened understanding and thought of her as being a woman of infidelity. And I say that that is all we are left with, too, unless we're prepared to accept God's revelation on the matter. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So, here's the conclusion, so the Holy One to be born will be called, not the son of Joseph, she's not even married at this time, but the Son of God. And it is this unique conception and birth which makes Jesus the Son of God and distinguishes him from all other boy babies born in our world. Now, brethren, there are two forms of knowledge open to us as people in this world. Or let me say it this way, two sources. One is divine revelation, in which God shares with us, his creatures, what... He himself knows. That's one source of knowledge. I call it a freebie. We don't work for this. We don't have to work for it. God simply gives us this wisdom out of his grace and mercy. Now the other source of knowledge is through science. Through the investigative process. 
a theory is postulated as based on available data. And then if it can be proven through scientific demonstration, it becomes a law of science. Uh, I, I use that word uh, cautiously. It becomes a law until something else is discovered that refutes it. And then they rewrite the books, uh, rewrite the chapter, reprint, send them back out to the kids for their science book for the new year. Now, our world, our world is pretty adept at employing the scientific method. But it has no experience with the supernatural revelations of God. And so because the world cannot prove the virgin birth in the laboratory through replication, it simply denies its reality and mocks anyone who believes it. That's how they handle it. As Christians, we're not afraid of true science, true science, because true science admits that it doesn't know everything there is to know. True science acknowledges that there is a vast body of yet undiscovered wisdom and knowledge that people know nothing about. It admits to having to change its theories. It expects to change them. They don't see any inconsistency with that. But as Christians, we have something far better going for us. And it is the infallible revelations in the Bible of the God who knows all things, the God who cannot lie. And so by his word, we are privy to things that the world cannot know or appreciate. By the Holy Spirit, a new and cataclysmic thing has occurred in our fallen material universe. The supernatural has claimed the natural. The eternal son has entered human history by means of a human body. God has come among us. I'll tell you, that just blow your mind when you start thinking, why would he do that? And what would be the advantage? And what's the purpose? And on and on we go. And that's why theology, the study of God, is the most, any, any, the most of all theologies that you could possibly set your heart upon. Now second, notice in your bulletin outline there, not only was the Holy Spirit the key figure in Jesus' conception, he also played the dominant role in Jesus' human, notice my terminology, human development. And when I speak of development, such a word implies change. And it can never be said that God changes. If he did, he would no longer be God. For perfection is less than perfect when you start tinkering with it. If it's perfect to start with and you change something about it, now it's not perfect anymore. Now, if God did change, he would no longer be God. And so the word development, as applied to Jesus, can only refer to his human nature. We should know 
that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who executes the operations of God in our world. It is he who brings about the day-to-day activities which fulfill the decrees of God above. This work ranges from the bestowing of mental and physical capacities in men to technical and artistic abilities in men to the unique and saving work of softening hard hearts and drawing sinners to believe in Christ and the ongoing work thereafter of making us holy like Jesus. The Spirit does all of this and more. In Jesus' humanity, in his humanity, it is the same. We cannot understand the New Testament Jesus apart from this reality, that it was the Holy Spirit of God who molded and developed and shaped his human nature and character. Nothing Jesus did in his human nature was done solely from his own divine power. Everything he did as at the human level was done by and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. If we're taken back by the stupendous miracles of Jesus, it's because we've never witnessed another man completely committed to and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And yet Jesus told his apostles, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. John 14, verse 12, an allusion to the sending of the Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost. In our study today, I'm concentrating not so much on Jesus' miracles, but on his personal development as a man. When the Bible states of Jesus that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, Luke 2, verse 52, we have insight to the fact that though Jesus was the eternal Son of God, in his humanity there were things of his divinity of which his human nature was unaware. Say, well, that sounds like a strange person. Strangely wonderful, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask this Does God grow in wisdom? Not if you believe the Bible. He already knows all things, He's always known all things. He's not going through a metamorphosis, He's not in university, He's not learning. Anything. There was a song in the 60s sung by Petula Clark. Now I'm really dating myself. In which uh, she sang, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing there's not plenty of. Lord, we don't need another mountain. There are valleys and hilltops enough to climb. Lord, we don't. Need another metal. There are metals and rivers enough to cross. Listen, Lord, if you really want to know. Well, what does she want the Lord to know? What the world needs is love, sweet love. Now there's something ignorant and also very arrogant 
as well, to suggest that there are things the Lord doesn't know, or even more so, that he can be informed how to do things better if he would just listen to us, his creatures. God knows all things, even before they happen. So God does not grow in wisdom ever. Not ever. But, that said, as a human being, Jesus acquired knowledge much like the rest of us do. He did not live out his human life by falling back on his divine nature. The finite did not become infinite. What was conditioned by age or circumstance or experience or culture and his, in his upbringing in a Jewish home did not become unconditioned by his divine nature. This then is real, real incarnation. Really a human being. A person who is true and totally a participant in our humanity. A definitive humiliation in which the creator became the creature. What does this mean? Well, it means that in Bethlehem we have a baby that cries to communicate. We have a baby that nurses at its mother's breast for its sustenance. We have a baby that wets diapers and dirties diapers. Just like any other human baby. In Nazareth, we have a young boy growing up in his father's house, helping his mother with household chores, no doubt, learning to read, learning to write, perfecting the carpenter's trade under the tutelage of his earthly father, Joseph, who was a carpenter by trade. Now listen, this is not, this is not God pretending to be a little boy. But it is God becoming a little boy. God experiencing in his humanity such things as dependence and growth and learning and perplexity and ignorance at times. The joy of discovery as all children go through. And in all of this the Holy Spirit shaping his character and developing his awareness of his relationship to God the Father. He was God's son, not Joseph's son, but he learned of his true identity, firstly, in the relationship established between him and God by the Spirit, and then reinforced as he grew in wisdom and awareness as a human being. Just as surely as we grow in understanding and as we mature, so in Christ. His understanding matured with age and learning. His intellect was educated by the perception of his divine nature. And we cannot believe that his wisdom was divorced from education in the scriptures. 
I think mom and dad taught him the scriptures, and I think he was enrolled in the rabbinical schools, and so on and so on. In one passage, at least, in one passage, at least, we have Jesus as one prepared for his bar mitzvah. The entrance into the adult Jewish society. We find him at age 12, Marvitzvah would be age 13, we find him at age 12 interacting with the learned teachers of Jerusalem, asking them probing questions, which even astonished his hearers because of the depth of his understanding. Luke 2 verse 47. And it was on that occasion that Jesus told Mary and Joseph that he had to be in his father's house and he had to be about his father's business. Which surely tells us that at this point, age 12, he knew who his real father was. And his mission in life was becoming increasingly more clear. The handwriting was on the wall. The carpenter's son would soon be leaving the shop and doing a totally different kind of work. By the way, they caught this little truth in the movie Ben-Hur. In that movie, they zone in on Joseph's little carpenter shop, and this client is there, and he's saying to Joseph, when are you going to have my table prepared for me? I, it's, you, you know, you've been working on this thing for a number of weeks, right, uh, Doug? <laughs> And, and, and uh, Joseph turns, he, he says, where's that son of yours? And, he, and, and Joseph says, well, he's out on the hills. He's, he's, he's out there praying and, and walking. He says, you need to get him in here and get him working where he, he needs to be doing uh, his father's work. And Joseph turns to the uh, patron and says, he's doing his father's that's pretty good for a secular movie to come up with that little they caught that you see and they put it in the movie by the time we find Jesus in public ministry there is no mystery in his own self-consciousness at all he knows who he is he knows why he has come he speaks and works the will of God always within the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in Acts 10, verse 38, Peter gives the synopsis of Jesus' ministry as he preached to the household of Cornelius. Here's what Peter says. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. What is going on here is that Peter, Peter is teaching Cornelius that Jesus performed the miraculous not out of his deity nor even out of his humanity but rather as one anointed by God's spirit to do as he did. God was with him. This is how he faced the cross and won. This is how he went to the grave and was victorious over death. Prior to his ascension, Jesus promised not to leave the disciples as orphans, but to come to them. John 14, verse 18. 
And in the context, he tells us how this is going to occur. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he lives with you. Notice how this is phrased. Right now, he lives with you and will be in you. In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And on that day you will realize that I am in you. Whoa, wow. Powerful words. In the next chapter, John 15, verse 23... After stating that those who love him will obey his teachings, Jesus goes on to say, My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going on to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And then in John 16, now we're just following sequentially here, In John 16, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. John 16 Verse 7 and following. Now, near as I can figure it out, this business of Jesus going away yet coming again, of not leaving the disciples as orphans, of God the Father and God the Son taking up residence in his people, of being of it being more advantageous for Christ to return to the Father so the Counselor might come, and finally, of the disciples not being able to comprehend all that Jesus wished to teach them, but being ably equipped after the Spirit came upon them. It appears to me that Jesus in his exaltation was given Complete control, let me say it this way, complete control of his own Holy Spirit to dispense as he saw fit, to return to his people in that spirit, to continue his ministry with us by being in us. Paul words it this way, Now the Lord is the Spirit, And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18. It is okay to think of 
the Christians as being filled with the Spirit of God, but it adds fuller dimension to the concept to realize that it is the same Spirit who once animated Jesus. His own mind, his own speech, his own actions when he walked this earth long, long ago. Christ has come back and dwelt with us. And it is refreshing to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the spirit that indwells every believer. He has not left us alone. And he's come to transform our lives and make us more and more like him. Now we're already his brothers and sisters in the faith. We are that. But this transformation, as you know, is sanctification work. We're not there with all of our thoughts and speech and actions. We're not holy like he is holy yet. And that's the work that he's doing within us. And as Dean is going to speak about this week to the campers, the work of evangelism is the Spirit's work as well. Now what's some lessons for the heart? Number one. Jesus knows what it means to be a human being living in a sinful and fallen world. He knows what it's like. Nothing good and godly comes to him automatically, just as nothing good and godly comes to us automatically. The Bible says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity for this reason... He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and following. You see how that's phrased? Now, we normally take this to mean the wilderness temptation of the devil, which I am sure is included, but consider the statements that Christ shared in our humanity and was made like his brothers in every way. I would suggest to you that the temptations of life, while summarized in the three areas of Jesus' battle with Satan in the desert, are far more extensive than the particulars of that occasion. When you are tempted to rely on your own reasoning in matters and to accept the philosophy of the world rather than what God says on a matter, Jesus experienced that too. Temptations to advance your own cause through manipulation of others, temptations to gossip, Temptation to spread vicious rumors. Temptations to base conduct on the psychology of human wisdom rather than on God's directives. Temptations to deny God, to disobey God, to ignore God. All these things tested the metal of Jesus of Nazareth. Any thought that he doesn't understand or worse, that he doesn't care what we go through trying to live righteously in a wicked world is unfounded. 
we may go to this one who was tempted in all points as we are and yet was without sin. And he can show us how to beat sin instead of being its victims. Are you a victim of sin today? Jesus, the Lord, can turn your life around. He can, and he will. We need to know this about Christ. Don't be saying in your heart or anywhere else, the Lord doesn't understand. Well, he didn't have to go through what I went through. He wasn't married. He doesn't have a wife. You know, all that kind of silliness that we go through. He was tempted in all points as we are. And yet came out through it righteously. Second, as believers, we are to live our lives as Jesus lived his. He didn't know everything about God as a human being, neither do we. But he learned, and he grew in maturity. And what he didn't know, he wasn't afraid to ask others who did know. He was found with the people of God in the temple of God on God's day, searching the scriptures. Some seem to be so content in their ignorance. Maybe they've given up on learning. So they do not try anymore. Some might be just plain lazy. The Christian faith is not for dummies, no matter how the world scoffs at us. If you're not studying your Bibles, you will be filled more with the philosophy of this age than the wisdom of God and the world, and its wisdom is destined for hell. And you need to keep that in mind. If you attend church once in a blue moon, you will be woefully, woefully equipped to face the hard decisions of life in a God-honoring way. And the example you set for your family will tell them that God isn't very important to you. So why should he be important to them? If you have more excuses than justifiable reasons for not fellowshipping with the people of God, your friends will be the people of the world. And all their godless thoughts, speech, and conduct, which so characterizes their godless view of life. You have to worry, watch this business about, well, you know, I'm hobnobbing with this group or that group, these people of the world, and so forth, because I want to win them to Christ. Okay, noble, noble goal. Are you winning them? Or are they winning you? Can it be charged to your account, Christian, what the writer of Hebrews accused his readers of? We have much to say to you, he writes, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. King James says, dull of hearing. In fact... <laughs> Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. The A's, the B's, the C's. Hebrews 5, verse 11 and 12. You know what this text teaches, among other things? It teaches us that God takes note of our spiritual progress or lack thereof. 
That God expects you to move from the place of student in the things of God to teacher. Now, maybe not in the formal sense of being a teacher, a theologian, a pastor, or whatever, but to be able to explain, to become proficient enough in the faith so that you can instruct others on how to find Christ and how to find peace with God. The writer of Hebrews is saying it's possible to slip spiritually and to go backwards. To forget what you've learned. And to have to have someone deal with you again concerning the elementary basics of the faith. May God forgive us for being sleepy and lazy and indifferent and careless, backslidden Christians. May we see the glory of Christ and strive to become like him. You have his spirit. Within you, don't tell me you can't learn the book. Don't, don't, don't tell me you can't learn doctrine, that you can't apply that in your life. So well, it's so hard. Well, Peter said that. He says there's some things in Paul's writings that's pretty, pretty hard to understand. But you know what that tells me about Peter? It tells me he was reading Paul's writings. <laughs> He's pressing on to know. Peter the fisherman was trying to keep up with Paul the rabbinically trained theologian. And guess what? He was doing it. He was doing it by the power of the Spirit of God. Finally, let us take to heart that just as the Spirit of God equipped Jesus for everything he taught and did, so everything you do for God must, must have the Spirit of God as its source, if it is to be approved. God's work done man's way doesn't cut it. God is looking for vessels to fill with his Spirit, vessels fit for the Master's use. There's nothing that we cannot do as a church. From the mundane things of paving the parking lot with limited resources to taking the gospel to our friends and neighbors if we will renounce self and selfishness and be led by the spirit of our holy Lord. He'll teach us how to do it. So I'm asking us to resolve today to get better acquainted with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord Jesus Christ's spirit from this day on. To realize that there was this vital connection that Jesus had with the Holy Spirit. That all of his life from conception to the end of his life was governed by the Holy Spirit of God. And since the Spirit has come from Pentecost on, you have this same animating spirit if you're a believer this morning. If you're not a believer, you can become one by trusting in the word of Christ by repenting of your sin, by saying, okay, the book says this about me, it's true about me. By asking the Lord to be your savior from yourself. Say, well, the way I think, no, we don't want the way you think. We want the way God thinks. And we have it in his book. 
That's the good news of the gospel, that God has come to fix humanity through the only person that can fix it, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that wisdom is poured out to us in the scriptures and by faith granted to us in the person of Jesus. If you'll stop, stop trying to work your way to heaven and trust what God says about his son, that he's the only way, and trust God about what he says about your sins, that there's none righteous, none, not even one. You're that close to the kingdom of God. May the Spirit even now open your eyes and your understanding and grab a hold of your heart and draw you and grant you that new birth that Nicodemus the rabbi needed to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born from above. This is the Spirit's word. Lord, we thank you for your word today and ask your blessing upon it. Teach us something of ourselves this day. Forgive us for sitting on our hands and doing nothing and blaming what? Well, I don't have a college education. Well, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Well, I don't have a quick mind like the theologians have. And on and on we go, making excuses. When in the Bible, the common fishermen learned how to follow God. Lord, send your spirit upon us. I know that unless you woo us and win us, we will not be brought to the foot of the cross. We will not confess our sins. We will not repent of them. We will not put our faith and trust solely in Jesus and not in our own works. We will not do any of these essential things unless your spirit does his work. Jesus put it this way. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The spirit can do what the flesh cannot. Save whom you will this day for the glory of Jesus our Savior. Amen.